Spend 10 minutes every single day. Tell your children to go outside. Tell your partner to go sit in the car. Tell your cats to like be gone. And just sit down and ask yourself, who am I and what am I doing? And where do I want to go? Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. We have a really cool guest to share with you today. His name is Matthew Dix, and he is the author of Someday Is Today, as well as nine other books. He's a best-selling novelist, nationally recognized storyteller, and award-winning elementary school teacher. It's going to be interesting to talk about this. He teaches storytelling and communication at universities, corporate workshops, and for organizations as well within communities. He has won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions, and together with his wife, created the organization Speak Up to help others share their stories. They also co-host the Speak Up Storytelling Podcast. Matthew, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll add that I, uh, I'm a terrible golfer, and uh, my son says that I'm sometimes a terrible parent, too, so I like to balance things when I can. You got to have the terrible balance with the good. So very, very, we'll, we'll talk all about your story and your journey. And, uh, you know, I don't think we'll have time for the golf, but it's so interesting, right? Because you're, you're a school teacher. You're so accomplished in other ways. You've, you're a prolific writer. Talk to us about your journey. Let's go back in the Matthew Dix time machine. What puts you on the path that you're on today? You know, it's weird because I can sort of give you a date, you know, November 28th, 1988. I was in high school and my parents were the kind of parents that had said, you're going to graduate and then you're on your own. And although I was doing well in school, no one mentioned the word college to me because I was growing up poor. And I think the assumption was he'll never be able to afford college. So let's not even talk to him about it. So I was sort of a kid who was really terrified in a lot of ways. You know, I had no future. And while my friends were planning SATs and, you know, college visits, I was trying to figure out where will I live and how will I eat when I graduate? And I happened to be in English class one day. My teacher, Mr. Campo, introduced us to satire for the first time. And I sort of thought this was great. I, I imagined it as an opportunity to make fun of my teacher and insult other people in a way that is acceptable and appropriate. So I end up writing this paper that I think is the most brilliant thing that has ever been written in America, truly, because I'm 17 and that's what I'm thinking. And when I gave it to him, he gave me a B minus and he wrote on the top, not satire, too obvious. And I was so angry with him. So I charged to the front of the room. I confronted him. We went at it for a little bit. And finally he said, fine, read it to the class. If the class thinks it's satire, I'll make you B minus and A minus. 
But if they agree with me that it's too obvious, your B minus becomes a C minus, which was really my first teaching lesson of my life, which is raise the stakes on kids. And so I stood in front of my class. I started reading aloud. First time in my life I've ever sort of performed something. And a couple sentences in, I heard the girl laugh who I had been in love with for all of my high school career. I had made her laugh. And by the time I was done reading, everyone was laughing. And so when Mr. Campo took the front of the room and said, raise your hand if you think what Matt has written was satire, every hand went up, including his. He said, it doesn't come across as satire on the page, but you bring so much life to it. I can't help but deny it sounds like satire. So that B minus became an A minus. I still have the paper. It's like in this file cabinet next to me now. And that changed my life, truly. That put me on the path because I felt like I could change my future a little bit through writing. You know, I made a girl laugh who I'd been trying to make laugh forever. I made a teacher look silly. You know, I proved he was wrong. Those two things were enormous already. But I just felt like, oh, maybe there is a future for me. You know, even though no one seems to think there's one, maybe there will be. And so Monday I arrived at school and I started my first business. I started writing term papers for my classmates. $50 for an untyped paper, $100 for a typed paper. And by doing my classmates' assignments, I purchased my first car. And that truly put me on the road to, you can make a future for yourself by doing things, by expressing yourself, by finding a way to impact other people. That was really the defining moment for me in many ways. So interesting, right? That one class paper shifted your entire focus from, oh my God, I'm going to be homeless when I graduate. So now you're buying cars, writing term papers, and, and you have figured out how to be a bit entrepreneurial at the age of 17 and do some really exciting things. So, and now let's flash forward to now you're a writer, you've written a ton of books, you've been nationally recognized for doing so. This book, the book that just came out, Someday as Today, why, what, what made you decide to write that book? Why that book? Well, I find myself standing in front of people a lot, you know, talking about my books, telling stories and performing. And when we get to that Q&A part of those talks, people always ask me, how do you manage to do all that you do? You're an elementary school teacher, you write books, you run a company, the podcasting, all the things that I do. And I always felt like if you would give me about 14 hours, I'll explain to you exactly how I've constructed my life so that I can get the things done that I want to accomplish while also being a good father and a good husband and a bad golfer and a decent poker player, those kinds of things. But no one ever wanted to give me 14 hours, including, you know, my wife and children. They don't want to hear from me that much. And so the book was the attempt to answer that question for people. So rather than just offering a strategy or two and then going home, I said, I'm going to write a book so that when people ask me, how do you manage to get these things done? I will be able to hand them a book or more you know, more appropriately, please purchase my book. And now you'll have the answer. So it's the answer to the question, how do I get the things done that I want to get done? And hopefully helping other people do the same. I am recognizing the satire throughout your remarks, which is good. So your your high school teacher will be proud of me. Uh, So let's talk about it, right? That's we live in a world where we're bombarded by things everywhere, whether it's digital information, whether it's, you know, what's going on in the world, which is tumultuous to say the least. How do you advise people kind of tune all that out, harmonize? Let's let's talk about that. I mean, there's so many different elements that go into what what you talk about, but I want, that's top of mind for me. So 
I think a lot of times what happens to people is that they either make decisions based in the absolute singular moment that they're operating in, or more tragically, they don't really make conscious decisions. They allow themselves to sort of just be moved through life to the, you know, like water down a mountain, moving to the easiest, you know, path. And so what happens ultimately then is that the dreams they have and the goals that they have, they don't manage to achieve them. Because if I was choosing to do anything I wanted in the moment right now, I would be eating a cheeseburger and playing golf and, you know, watching Netflix. Those are the things I would like to do right now, the version of me that's talking to you. But what I believe is that what we have to do is think to the future. I have this, this theory or this practice where rather than asking myself, this version of me, what should I do right now? How should I spend this hour? I look ahead to the hundred year old version of myself, the one that's sort of at the end of his life. And I ask him, how do you want me to spend the next hour? Because he never says, eat a cheeseburger and binge Netflix, right? The hundred year old version of me recognizes that that is not a great way to live my life. He says, you have a lot of stories to write. You should probably spend this hour writing the story or Charlie is in the backyard throwing a baseball around. Why are you not outside with him? Because he's growing up and you'd better hurry up and do as much as you can with him, you know, or you haven't seen your friends in a week. Go, go and spend time with your friends because that's the important stuff. I think that the future version of us is the, what, is the version of us that has the most wisdom. And if we look to that version of ourselves and ask that version, what should I do today? We're going to get a better answer. And I think most people just sort of tragically live in this singular moment or don't make decisions at all. I like that a lot. You know, nobody goes to their deathbed saying, geez, I wish I spent less time with the people I care about and did less things, you know, that are important. And so, you know, yeah, the cheeseburger and Netflix is easy, but you're talking about basically it's like having a conference with yourself and saying, hey, like this is this is much more important. And I'm going to write a book instead of I'm going to binge Netflix. All right. So, yeah. So I, I know one of the things that you say in the book is that someday is your least favorite word in the dictionary. Talk to us about that. I think it's just sort of a trap for people. I think most people spend their lives thinking that someday they're going to reach for that goal or or chase that dream that they had when they were a kid. And what happens, I think, to almost every person is they run out of some days. They, they somehow assume that tomorrow is promised to them. And then eventually they either become too old or something happens to them that prevents them from chasing that dream, or quite frankly, they die. I think most people die with enormous regret. You know, when I was 22, I was robbed at gunpoint and a gun was placed to my head and the trigger was pulled several times. And I was absolutely certain in that moment that I was going to die. And the astonishing thing for me and also the terrifying thing for me was that in those, what I thought were gonna be final moments, I didn't feel any fear and I didn't feel any anger. The only thing I was consumed with was regret. Regret that I had not actually done much with my life and how I was gonna go out sort of without any accomplishment that I had hoped to have. And so I've sort of structured my life in, in a way that I don't have to experience that regret, that someday when I meet my end, I'll be able to look back and hopefully not have those same feelings. And those are feelings that if you ask hospice workers, they'll tell you that at the, in the last days of someone's life, 
oftentimes the feelings they have are regret for the things they haven't done, for the chances they didn't take, for the roads they ignored. And so for me, someday is the idea that that there will be another day for you to complete something. And I just know in my heart that that's not true. And what I try to encourage people to understand is we have to make our someday today because there is no guarantee for tomorrow. We cannot wait because waiting is just, it's a disastrous way to live your life. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. It really resonates in a lot of different ways. And, you know, your story about the gunpoint is, is very poignant because, you know, when you and I can relate to this because when I was in the car accident many years ago that that broke my back, as I was in this three second, you know, impact and then spinning into oncoming traffic and hitting a telephone pole, regret is the emotion that I was overwhelmed with too, right? And so there are no tomorrows necessarily. And caveat emptor, right? Seize the day, and. That's so well said. I, I I love I love 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 what you just said there. So I want to I want to shift a little bit. Is there something else that I like that you wrote? And in, in that hope is something that you focus on. And I know that a lot of people feel hopeless right now. So talk to us about why you believe hope is so essential to success and to living the lives we always wanted. I don't think people take steps forward without hope in their heart. You know, there really is no reason to take a step forward and chase a dream or, you know, run to that horizon unless you think that the possibility of success exists. I think the tricky thing about hope is that often people think of hope as an enormous gulp. You know, they have to be able to believe that they can make an enormous leap in a single day or or, or enormous change overnight. I think what we have to do is we have to find hope that incremental change over time yields enormous results. And so that means if you do have a horizon, and I hope everyone does, what you really want is sort of a dream on a horizon that you almost never catch. And that way you're, you're always running and you're always moving forward. But you have to have hope that you can change this day in a small way or change yourself today in a small way, a very tiny way, but a bunch of tiny changes accumulated over a period of time will really create something miraculous. So we have to hope that small things yield enormous results. And we can't walk around hoping that tomorrow is going to be entirely different and that we're going to suddenly have a phone call that changes our lives. Those things tend not to happen. And the people that I think are successful, the ones who understand, I'm going to do a little thing today, understanding or hoping that tomorrow will be different. That's the kind of hope I think people need. 
it makes me think of the compound effect, right? It's, it's doing the little things, you know, people, there are people that say, geez, if I won the lottery today, you know, everything would be better. But realistically, I think I saw that you're likelier to get struck by lightning twice than actually, you know, have a, a lotto ticket <laughs> that yields the, the money that everybody wants. So yes, it's doing little things. What can I do today? How can I do it differently? And, you know, there, there is science behind what you're talking about as well. I mean, we, we know this for, from decades of, of research, even, even lower animals like rats, right? There's learned helplessness. Like we can demonstrate very clearly that uh, there is no inertia without hope. So I, I love the way that you talked about that. Uh, Matthew, I want to circle back to, to what you kind of led with regarding why you wrote this book and that you're a man who wears many hats and you're a teacher and a podcaster and you have your consulting and speaking, all these things. So you can't do that by being efficient and really maximizing every second of every hour of every day that you're working. Tell us some tips that people can use in their lives right now so that they can improve their efficiency as well. Well, one of the easiest things to do is to stop, to stop assuming that goals can only be accomplished in sort of 15 or 30 or one hour increments. It's a weird belief that I see people have all the time where you know, as a writer, I'll, I'll be working on a book and I'll meet someone who says, well, I can't work unless I have an hour. And I think, well, that's unfortunate because during World War I, there were men in trenches wearing gas masks. Artillery was exploding over their heads and they had tiny notebooks and they were scribbling down stories that they hoped if they survived might get published someday. And they were literally writing a sentence at a time between gunshots. So isn't it fortunate that today you have an hour in a Starbucks, you know, drinking your latte, but that is the perception people have. And so if you sort of strip that away and you stop thinking about time in large increments and you start valuing minutes rather than hours or, or, or half hours, that's going to change a lot. Because like I said, with those, that hope, those tiny little changes over time accumulate also those minutes over time accumulate enormously. My wife in the book, she writes the forward. She calls these my little black holes. She says, I fill in all the little black holes with something productive. So that means if I'm calling for my children to get in the car so that we can leave, which means my son has to find his shoes, which are always in two different rooms. And my daughter has to grab nine books in order to like make a 10 minute car ride. While I'm waiting for all that nonsense to happen, my wife is usually standing by the door scrolling through her phone. But I am doing something like, I'm going to go write six good sentences, or I'm going to revise the last six sentences that I wrote earlier today, or I'm going to empty half the dishwasher. Because if I get half of it emptied now, that's less that I have to do later. And that'll allow me to get to something else I want to do. And so if we stop thinking about time in chunks, but instead in minutes, and we use those minutes well over time, and it won't take very much time, you'll start to realize there's more time in your day than you realize that you're just sort of dithering away, waiting instead of doing something productive or meaningful or something that brings joy to you. I love that. Any, any other tips you can share? I, I would start to look at things like sort of any time-saving um, any time saving activities. One I always tell people to look at is their sleep because I often meet people who tell me, they need to sleep eight hours a night. And I'm a big fan of sleep. I believe in sleeping the appropriate amount. Now, admittedly, I don't sleep as much as most people. I sleep about 
somewhere between five and six hours a night. But, you know, my wife would tell you she needs to sleep eight hours a night, but that's not really true because it takes my wife about 45 minutes to fall asleep. And then after the alarm goes off, she sort of hangs around in bed for half an hour. So if you do the math, she's not really sleeping for eight hours. She's really sleeping for like six and a half hours. But the problem is she's got all of these terrible sleep habits, which create problems for her. I fall asleep within truly within a minute of going to bed, but that is because I go to bed at the same time every single night. I've studied meditation, so I know how to empty my brain. I'm using white noise to trigger my brain to go to sleep. I've lowered the temperature of my bedroom a little bit because I know that is good for sleep. I take a warm shower before I go to bed because I know that's relaxing. I do all of these things that allow myself to instantaneously fall asleep. And then I get up around 4.45 in the morning and I almost always get up without an alarm because I get up at the same time every day. And the joyous part of opening your eyes without an alarm and feeling refreshed because your body has released the chemicals that are required to allow you to awaken in a refreshed state, that is a beautiful thing. And it's not how most people wake up. Most people are startled awake by an alarm. And then they use the tragic snooze alarm, which is disastrous to your entire day. It sets your, sets your body into a new sleep cycle that you then startle out of again. And so things like that, I, I focus on sleep because I think there's good savings that can be made in sleep. When someone tells me they need eight hours of sleep, once we really drill down and see what's happening with their sleep, their, their sleep cycle and the way they're handling sleep, they often need less sleep than they think. And what they're really talking about is time spent occupied in the bed, but not actually sleeping. And so if you want to get stuff done, you can probably save yourself 30 minutes, maybe an hour from just not being in bed if you improve your sleep habits. That's a simple one to do. I love that a lot. There is, uh, I want to switch gears here. There's something in your book that's intriguing to me. You, you say that curiosity kills productivity. Yeah. And you, and, and you, in fact, encourage people to do the opposite. Like, don't be curious. Tell us about that. That sounds counterintuitive. I tell people to be incurious about the things we have no control over or things that will not produce any meaningful results for us in the future. So, you know, my favorite example of this is I was sitting at my table one day with my father-in-law and I was opening the mail and I had my Korean sales statement for one of my novels and it had a check inside. So I opened it, I took the check out and then I went to throw away the sales statement. And he said, oh, how many books did you sell in Korea last, you know, last year? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, aren't you going to look? And I said, well, I don't speak Korean. I'm not going to go to Korea. It's a translation I can't even read. And my publisher will not have me do any publicity in Korea. So it really doesn't matter. I just need to deposit the check and move on. And he says, but how can you not be curious about how many books you sold in Korea? And I said, well, I'd have to read the statement. I'd have to figure out how to read it because every foreign statement is different. And frankly, I'd just rather go write five good sentences than read a sales statement that will ultimately yield nothing for me other than maybe satisfying a little bit of curiosity that I am choosing to avoid. And so I think quite often in life, we sort of pursue curiosity, you know, down a path that leads to nowhere. So there's nothing wrong with being curious about something that genuinely intrigues you, might make a difference in your life, might bring more joy to your life. But I just, I think a lot of times we spend we spend our lives looking at things that are ultimately meaningless to us and will yield no results. So I just encourage people to be incurious about nonsense. You know, that's also things like gossip in life. 
you know, when I'm working and three people gather in a hallway and start talking about a fourth person, I just say to myself, well, I could find out what this fourth person did. And it might be, you know, salacious and, you know, it might be a, a little, you know, interesting in that way that gossip is, but it's not going to make me happy. It's not going to bring any joy to my life. I think I'll go into my classroom and prepare the lesson so that I can leave early and then go play with my son. I think I will do that instead and save the gossip for other people. So that's what I talk about in terms of being incurious. Avoid stuff that wastes our time if it doesn't yield anything for us. You know, I love that. And one of the things that I often talk about in the media and on other platforms is I really encourage people to unplug from news outlets, as well as social media. And, and I know social media is something that you talk about as well, and not in a good way. So share with us, uh, you know, how you feel social media impacts one's ability to be productive. Well, it's astounding how much time people spend on it. And, and I use social media, I think, in a way that advances my cause. The average American today is spending about astoundingly six hours on social media. And that means 15 years ago, when social media was not really a thing, Americans were spending six hours on something else. I suspect that 15 years ago, those six hours were better spent. I suspect they were exercising and reading and doing things that made them happy as opposed to what social media does to us today, which is really oftentimes makes us feel awful about who we are and what we're doing. And so for me, I use Twitter in a very curated, careful way. So you're never going to catch me scrolling through Twitter. But when I want to find the news of the day, I have four or five news sources that I've sort of followed. And I go, okay, in a minute, I can figure out what's happening today by looking at Twitter. And, you know, I use Facebook, but only to put my content into the world and then walk away. So my wife will say, oh, did you see that your cousin's pregnant? And I, I say, no, how would I know? And she said, well, she put it on Facebook. And I say, well, I'm not a consumer of Facebook. I don't read Facebook or follow Facebook. I put things into the world for all of those consumers who sit at their computers and stare at it all day. At least they can see what I am doing. So I think if you're using social media in a strategic and careful and you know appropriate way in terms of chasing your goals or your dreams, I think that's fantastic. But if you're scrolling, if you're doom scrolling and just following other people's lives and meaningful or meaningless bites. I think that's a big mistake. So, and I agree, unplug whenever possible. You know, I, you're never going to catch me on social media, except when I go, all right, I'm in line at CVS. I have four minutes before I'm going to be next in line. This is the moment for me to open Twitter and find out what's going on in the world today. I'm never going to be scrolling in the presence of my children, in the presence of my students, on the golf course, that's the time when the phone disappears. It doesn't need to be in my hand. It never needs to be in my hand. So find the moments where you can fill those black holes maybe with a little bit of that dose that you need or that you want or that you're strategically using, but not as part of your regular day. I think that's a disastrous way to live. I, I totally agree. Uh, I wanna talk about something else that you said in your book that struck me as interesting. You encourage your readers to preserve their compliments. That's interesting. Tell, tell us about that. Well, as a school teacher, I know that the research says that, unfortunately, we are trained, our brains are wired to remember the negative more than the positive. And that made sense when we were hunter-gatherers. You know, when you needed to remember which, which berry bush killed Uncle Joe and which one didn't, Remember the negative was really important, but we live in a world today filled with like Doritos and door locks. So we don't really need to 
be so focused on the negative, but that's the way our brains work. So as a teacher, I know that a negative statement requires six positive statements to counteract. And that is a hard goal to achieve in this life. It is really hard to find six positive statements for every negative one. So one of the ways that I'm sort of trying to preserve my spirit and balance that equation better for me is when I am complimented either through email or text message or on social media, or even verbally, someone says something kind to me, I have a file, it's on my phone and on my computer. It's, I use the program Notion and I cut and paste those compliments or actually type them in if they're spoken to me. So I have an enormous file of compliments that have been offered to me over the last 10 years. And if I'm having a day where I am not quite feeling myself, when someone has been especially cruel to me and I'm starting to doubt you know, that, that imposter syndrome starts to seep in, I open up that file in Notion, I scroll it, and let it land on something. And a compliment that was offered to me five years ago is suddenly facing me. And if I need a second one, I scroll it again. And it's my way of sort of counteracting the negative by taking a compliment and doubling its power by allowing it to come back to me. I'll even do things like if someone emails me a compliment, they say something nice about one of my books, I'll snooze that compliment, you know, so I will forward that compliment to the future so that it arrives in my inbox a second time unexpectedly. So I can double the power of that compliment. I think that we just, as people who want to create things, do things, achieve our goals, we can also be working really hard to maximize the positivity that we have in our lives by taking what we already have and just making it work more for us while recognizing there's just a lot of negativity in the world that we have to deal with. So anything we can do to bring a little more positivity to our lives, I think is going to make us a better person and, and better prepared to meet our goals. Amen. I, I love every bit of that. That is fantastic. Uh, we're near the end, Matthew, but I want to take a little bit of time and let you share with us about your podcast, about Speak Up Storytelling Podcast. Tell us about it. Sure. So my wife and I produce storytelling shows here in Connecticut, live storytelling shows, at least until the pandemic, we're coming back now. And we record those shows. And so the podcast features one of the stories that are told at one of our shows. And then after the story plays, my wife and I sort of deconstruct the story. We talk about what's working really well, how the storyteller could have improved the story. So our goal is to sort of give you a very entertaining personal story that, you know, hopefully will make your day a little better. But then we're going to give you some very specific tactical tips to improve your own personal storytelling, whether you're standing on stages like I do all the time, or you're just at a dinner party or at a barbecue or playing golf with your friends and you just want to say the thing that happened to you in a more entertaining way. We're helping people tell their best stories. So, so that's the purpose of the podcast. And we have a lot of fun with it. Awesome. Well, Matthew, I have so enjoyed our conversation. As you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests just this one question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? I think what I'd like people to do is to sort of afford themselves the right to think about themselves. I think we spend an enormous amount of time in our lives thinking about our spouses and partners and children and colleagues and customers and parents and neighbors. Most of us really spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about other people. And we almost never think of ourselves. Thinking of yourself in terms of sit down on the couch and ask yourself, who am I? How did I end up here? Where am I going? How am I feeling? 
what is the thing that I want to say to people tomorrow? I don't think we do that very often. And so I'm always telling people, spend 10 minutes every single day. Tell your children to go outside. Tell your partner to go sit in the car. Tell your cats to like be gone and just sit down and ask yourself, who am I and what am I doing? And where do I want to go? And what do I want to say next to someone I love? I think that when we do that, we find stories that we don't know we have, stories that have been hiding. And we start to see sort of patterns in our lives that we didn't know existed. We can take credit for things that we've been ignoring. We can see problems that we have that perhaps we haven't noticed, all of those things. I think if we all spend a little more time being a little more self-centered, frankly, just a little bit, like in a positive way, I think we would leave better lives and I think we would head in directions that make us happier. I loved every second of that. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Matthew, tell us where people can find out more about you and get their hands on the book. Uh, if you go to matthewdix.com, you can kind of find everything there. You can get my book wherever books are sold and you can find my podcast wherever podcasts exist today. Perfect. And we'll have everything Matthew Dix in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com. So we got you covered if you're on the treadmill. Matthew, I loved our conversation today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And I also wanted to thank each and every one of you who took time out of your day to listen to this show. If you like what you heard, go give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because that is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 